0: To learn about graduate student fellowship opportunities with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University for students at Mason, as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. Good
1: morning, Stephanie. Today Good is morning. October 21st, 2020, and I'm here with my colleague, uh, Stephanie Hoffley, and we are gonna talk about economic sociology. So uh, let's just dive in there. So. I uh, want to hear a little bit about your origin story. Uh, I didn't have this; it, it didn't tell you this in advance. But when I was at the, I, I met your professors last year, exactly about a year ago this time, and uh, and they told me about this this uh, hard nosed economic student, Chicago economist, you know Stephanie, and I bet you she's given hell to all of you, you know, like that. And I was like. Oh, okay, like that. But that's actually true. I remember that because, uh, you know, I remember when you first came to study and you were in my class and and you aced my pre-class exam, which is an economic way of thinking. But tell us a little about your origin story, why GMU, your experiences and and whatnot.
2: Great, yeah, thanks. So I started out um, with my undergrad at the University of North Alabama. Uh, I had moved down there Uh, Because my family had moved down there right after I graduated high school, and I had really young siblings, so I wanted to stay close by. And so it was really kind of a small school that was nearby where my parents were living. Uh, And they wanted me to do uh, get a major in business because I was interested in a lot of different things, and they wanted to make sure I had some skills before I went and did whatever they thought I was going to do. Uh, And so I started in finance and took a couple of econ classes and didn't quite like them a lot, Uh, it was mostly like micro in the summer, but I started taking more and more classes that overlapped with finance and economics, and I started getting really excited in the ideas and realized that economics was more of like the philosophy of these ideas rather than just, you know, putting a bunch of calculations into a spreadsheet, which was a lot of the finance classes that we were doing at the time. And so I just started taking more and more and ended up double majoring and got to know my professors pretty well. Um, one of my professors, uh, Jim Couch, he's a student of Bill Shugart's, um, which I did not know at the time. Uh, he invited me to present at a small conference and then I got to help him edit the journal associated with that conference uh, and just got to he kind of say yes to a bunch of projects and and dig in a bit more. He and another professor of mine suggested I look into Mason because I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do. I didn't want to become like a person in the finance industry. I had done some interviews and wasn't into that. (laughs) Um, And so I started looking at Mason and the master's program, and it just seemed perfect. Like I, economics had really Spark something in me that was like, yes, this is how I see the world. And now there's things that there's theories and ideas to to formulate that. Um, They were very kind of Chicago style with a little bit of public choice thrown in. Uh, uh, Professor Couch had a daughter named Reagan, for example. So, (laughs) (laughs) Um, and so when I saw Mason, it seemed like this is even more a fit because it was a broader look at economics. Uh, So it was actually the only school I applied to And just hoped that I got in. And then I learned about the MA fellowship and applied to that and got in as well. And, um, you know, really ended up being the right fit. Um, While I was an undergrad, I also was doing things like volunteering with Habitat for Humanity, working at a local coffee shop. Uh, A lot of my friends were uh, not in the econ department or the business school. And so I was, you know, kind of having these in some ways you could imagine like dual roles, right? Like I was interested in civil society and I was really interested in economics. And when I came to Mason, I learned that you could put those things together um, which then was really helpful too. So sort of a, a slow, uh, like kind of turning point. But once I knew that path, it was the only thing I wanted to do.
1: Can you, uh, let's stay on this a little bit because that master's program is a unique program. And, you know, part of your story is also coming back to then give play it forward with that kind of program. But you had some pretty, pretty uh, interesting professors in that master's program as well. Uh, and in particular, the made, what was your, you know, talk a little bit about that experience with, because that's entrepreneurship was a major focus of that program at the time. And Uh, the Ostroms and institutional analysis, because you would get that and how you do that with policies and stuff. And so, yeah.
2: Yeah. So for somebody who hadn't really, you know, been, uh, I hadn't read any Hayek before I came to Mason, right? I had that kind of more Chicago style econ background, but was really interested in the ideas, doing the master's program in the MA fellowship when I did 2008 to 2010 was really amazing because you got an immediate quick dive into a lot of the ideas that um, matter here and matter for the Hayek program. Um, So uh, we were really lucky, um, micro and macro, the two micro classes were taught by Russ Roberts and Don Boudreaux. And so for somebody that wasn't sure about going into academia, but was really interested in applying these ideas, amazing communicators, right, to see. And then I got to go, you know, listen to Russ Roberts also talk on the Hill and hear how, you know, the similar concepts were discussed with a different audience, which I found really interesting. Um, The financial crisis happened like the fall we came and started. Uh, And so all of a sudden I was getting tasked to do a bunch of financial things because I also had that as a major, Uh, but we did not learn about credit default swaps in undergrad. Um, But that was really, (laughs) it was interesting because it was really challenging, but also I got to immediately see research I helped with on, you know, people went and did testimonies on the Hill and you could go right. and listen. Um, but in addition to that, we had a class on entrepreneurship by Fred Sate, where we basically spent the whole semester digging into these various concepts of entrepreneurship, looking at the cognitive and behavioral um, approaches, really digging into Israel Kirzner's work, but also seeing how. Uh, business schools and entrepreneurship studies have used these ideas and we were I was in your Austrian class at the same time and we were reading uh human action and competition on entrepreneurship Rothbard Hayek um and it was really when you could kind of see how those the entrepreneurship studies fit in that class where you could figure out we were really getting somewhere which was really interesting Um, uh, And so there's a bunch of, you know, really challenging classes and also, you know, kind of figuring out, do I want to be in policy or academia? But also I just got to say like, yes to a bunch of opportunities. So learned how to do op-eds and policy briefs, but also got to spend a semester reading Israel Kersner, which the first time I met him after that, I was like speechless. I still can't form sentences around him because (laughs) I'm just very impressed.
1: (laughs) Were you, uh, you were still at Mason when when Lynn won the Nobel as well, and then she came that January and everything, yeah.
2: Yeah, um, I actually got to go to dinner in a group with her and sat next to her at dinner. We were at um, the restaurant that's uh, Ted's with the bison and everything yeah, yeah. that was in Boston. Yeah. Um, I, and I've talked about this before, but, you know, I, I was really excited about her work. She incorporated fieldwork and these other ideas, but, you know, also this, you know, incredibly influential figure. You're nervous as a master's student and, and not sure what to do, but getting to talk to her over dinner, she, you know, she talked about the challenges of being a woman in academia, but also kind of how to go about what you're interested in. Um, and I got a hug at the end and I say that it changed my life and it, it really did because they're, by the time I finished the master's program, I, I knew I wanted to go work for a couple of years, but I had gotten the bug of research and, you know, wanted to, um, you know, kind of follow in the footsteps of, of, of you and Eleanor Ostrom and Kersner and those ideas.
1: No, that's, that's fantastic. I mean, Lynn had that effect on everyone, right? She, she um, uh, was an amazing personable down to earth, uh, you know, person, um, like simple things, drinking beer out of a bottle rather than, you know, having to have it in a glass or, or demanding this, you know, getting her scotch or whatever. Um, yep. But uh, the, and, and she had this great laugh. Um, I, I, I want to push a little bit on the master's program some more because it, it was a such a very successful program. It was started uh, as a brainchild of Brian Hooks. Uh, you know, uh, many years before it, it sort of matured. You were right in the sweet spot as it was really taking off. And you of course have contributed so much to its development, but maybe just very briefly, you know, mention about the different fellowship opportunities and then the fellowship opportunities um, after graduation. Because one of the things that's really amazing about that program is how it sets up people after you get out. Um, and it's a very big part of all of that. So. And that includes like your own experience and where you went to do stuff. Yeah.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I was in the second class of the MA fellowship and it had gone, there were four in the first year and we started with 11 of us um, in that second year. And it was a, it, it's changed a bit now just because Mercatus has grown and scholars are different, but uh, you know, back then we could all fit in a small conference room and uh, when the financial crisis happened, and they started the financial markets working group, you could just go in and sit on these ideas that they were talking about. Um, but it really combines a curiosity and a desire to get more graduate training with this sort of, you know, for somebody who's not quite interested or doesn't know if they're interested in academia, but they want to pursue these ideas, they can do that in policy or or government or advocacy or or um, at a university-based that center as somebody who does a lot of the programming. Yeah. And so that was really appealing to me because I, I, I didn't think I wanted to be an academic, um, which uh, it just took a couple of years to convince me that's what I really wanted to do. Uh, but it really kind of looked at what I was interested in and it was how you know economics has a lot to say about the world, and it has a lot to say about how everyday people interact with policies and opportunities. And so I was really always interested in like what happens, not necessarily about you know, technocratic policy debates, but how do they get impacted? Um,
0: right.
2: Like how do they impact people on the ground? And so the program was really helpful for that because we had uh, the classes taught by Mason faculty like Ross and Dawn and you and others. Uh, we had reading groups. Uh, so the very first month we were reading Weber's Bureaucracy, uh, which was a challenge as a first semester <laughs> master's student, uh, but really digging into how things work. Tulloch's Bureaucracy really struck me early on because you know, he had he was taking some of that from experiences that he had as well, kind of like coasted. And then, and then you got all this opportunities to work with um, policy scholars on really interesting topics. And so at that time we were, um, Mercatus had the social change project, which, you know, in many ways is the HIAC program today. And then there was the regulatory studies side. And so you kind of got assigned to a side in the beginning. Um, and so I was, I was assigned to regulatory studies and did work on financial crisis and, and things like that. But, um, and some of the government accountability projects that were happening at the time. But I was really interested and jealous of everyone at social (laughs) change. Uh, So I would just find a way to learn about those projects. So it gave you a lot of flexibility. If you wanted to dive into research, you could do so in a bunch of ways. Um, The staff at Rokadis were also really hands-on and and helpful. So uh, Dan Rothschild was, somebody who helped create our workshops and reading groups at the time. He helped me with an op-ed when I was a student and gave a lot of advice for for going into jobs. He's now runs Mercatus. Um, I learned about an opportunity to work in government called the Presidential Management Fellowship from Rob Rafferty who who worked there and had done the program. Um, And since then we've had several more MA fellows go and do that program. And so you just get connected with people that you wouldn't get to otherwise. The second year of the MA fellowship, I helped uh, do some research assistance for the TARP committee members. And so I just got to meet new people and and, and go and hear those things on the Hill. And so, you know, those ideas of being near D.C. and being able to jump into the conversation made it an easy fit to then be able to go and work at FEMA and the Forest Service later. Um, since then we have now, I think almost over a hundred, we have over a hundred alumni of the MA fellowship, um, and they're working in policy and government positions and at university-based centers. And so the network that we have now is really quite great. Um, and that-
1: You You mentioned the presidential fellowship that you won and that others have won since that time. I mean, my understanding that's a, a very prestigious you know, thing to be involved in and it led to you being at you know, FEMA and the Forestry Service bef- for a few years before you came back. So what was that experience like to try to take economic way of thinking and be right in the, the middle of FEMA and the Forestry Service?
2: Yeah, so the fellowship was great because it's a two year program. So I could just think about it as being two years. And I kind of went in with the idea that I wanted to learn a lot more about how uh, the bureaucracy of, of disaster studies and how government works from the inside. Uh, and so I kind of came, went in thinking it would be sort of like field work, and it ended up right. really being that. Um, and so what was helpful was, you know, as somebody just out of graduate school in the program, you have to do trainings and you have to do rotations in other departments or agencies. So it gave you a lot of flexibility. And so if you weren't feeling challenged, you could add a project, um, uh, which was helpful because I, I always say yes to all the things. So yeah. <laughs> one of the things to move from, from doing the MA fellowship to kind of working full-time was you know, how to feel as fulfilled as you did when you were in the environment of the fellowship. Um, yeah. And so I did some other things in addition to that. Um, that also helped impact the experiences I had. Like I helped people study for the immigration and citizenship tests um, on the side when I was working there. Um, But I was really lucky to have bosses that were kind of thoughtful and listened to the ideas that I had to say even though I was young and didn't have a lot of experience yeah. um, at FEMA. And so I think that was really helpful. Uh, and my boss at, at FEMA actually sent me over to the forest service to learn about um, emergency management from their perspective. Their framework is what FEMA has really utilized mm-hmm. um, uh, to create their, their emergency management framework. And so um, there were some political challenges going on at FEMA around the time I was supposed to come back. And so my my boss at FEMA convinced my boss at the Forest Service to keep me on there, <laughs> um, uh, which was good. Um, but I was able to basically, one of the things I say is, you know, you're talking about Hayek and the knowledge problem all the time when you're working in these areas, but you're just never saying that's what it is. Right. And so, you know, having the space where I could ask questions and push back about certain things were really interesting. My boss at the forest service was, you know, uh, he had started out as a smoke jumper uh, back in the day. So he would jump out of airplanes to fight firefighters, fight fires. And so you kind of like retire uh, to the DC office, but he, you know, was really diligent about, you know, taxpayer responsibility to the taxpayer. And he didn't know he was kind of curmudgeonly and, and didn't, always get along with everyone at the but that was a really good space for me to be able to learn about those things talk to him about those ideas and, and yeah. kind of dig into it from there so
1: I, you know it's interesting because in many ways you know the you came to to begin the masters program at mercatus we were kind of at uh, in in the middle of the Katrina project but then when the financial crisis hit, a lot of attentions were drawn away from less necessarily Katrina and more towards more immediate issues of public policy. Um, but the Katrina project continued, but you had that experience of working for Habitat for Humanity. So that's one. Then you go and work at FEMA, uh, another. And now I wanna talk about you know just your scholarship and, and your dissertation work and everything. And so, <clears throat> You know, it's kind of interesting because, you know, when you said you got to GMU and then they have the financial crisis and, you know, all that stuff. So, you, 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 you know, one could say, you know, trouble follows you or whatever, but you come, <laughs> back, you come back to graduate school and then Superstorm Sandy hits and you were able to, to draw on the resources that were from the Katrina project, but mix them with your own experiences let's say, with Habitat for Humanity, as well as then the work that you had done as a person at, at FEMA, you know, to be able to do this. So tell us a little bit about the the research design, the different stages of that project, like, say, for example, the, the immediate, you know, relief, uh, you know, uh, sort of uh, recovery uh, response or response relief recovery uh, kind of aspects of it. And, what you learned in the process and the challenges and tribulations that were associated with all that.
2: Yeah, definitely. Um, so I had, you know, you mentioned habitat and like getting to a sense of what the Katrina project was as a master's student. When I learned that fieldwork was a part of what we could do at Mason, I got really excited. And so my master's thesis, um, included doing interviews with Habitat for Humanity, um, homeowners and people who work there to compare that to um, sort of government affordable housing projects and and kind of how they might fill the space in an interesting way, uh, which became part of my dissertation later. um, I also started working with Virgil Store on a paper um, that was published right, right around the time I came back to Mercatus in 2012, Um, on the Katrina project. And uh, that paper was on um, how heterogeneous loose-knit communities can still utilize social capital to recover. Uh, And so I kind of gotten the taste of that. So when I um, got the Presidential Management Fellowship and I was looking for jobs, I really focused on a FEMA and HUD um, because I was really interested in disasters and and housing policy. Um, and so coming back, it was a natural fit to start working with Virgil and Laura Groob on this um, Sandy project because I wasn't able to do interviews with Katrina because they had stopped about the time I had come uh, to the master's program. Uh, and I now had experience of, of being at FEMA in the forest service as well. And so um, the project of applying these ideas to Superstorm Stan, Sandy was um, originally Laura's project. And then we kind of all, it all became a part of um, something we did more broadly and then became part of the book um, yeah. from a couple of years later. Uh, so one of the things that we were trying to focus on is the Katrina project was so big, right? You got such a great expanse of neighborhoods and communities and, and interviews um, you know, I've, I've, I've spent many, many hours reading all the transcripts um, from the interviews that are, that are there, um, but this project was going to be different from the beginning because it was really just me and Laura, and so we wanted to focus on one community that we could dive deep into rather than maybe try to do a bunch to kind of replicate, but not have any of the details that that we might need. Um, So at first, Laura went up to New Jersey and New York to sort of um, assess different neighborhoods and and see if we could figure out which ones might be good Um, and settled on the Rockaway Peninsula in Queens uh, and particularly an Orthodox Jewish community there uh, because we thought it would be an interesting comparison uh, to the uh, Catholic Vietnamese community yeah. in New Orleans. And so um, we had about a year of preparation before we went down the first summer and we spent two summers um, uh, down there. Uh, Laura and I got very close because we you know, shared a hotel room, did every interview together, every a debrief, um, but it was a really great experience to kind of just spend those weeks immersed in the community. Um, Uh, Jessica Cargis, who now is a PhD student and works on our team, was an intern at the time. And so we utilized her to help us try to set up um, interviews. So uh, what was nice about the Rockaways is there's a couple of books written about them, uh, looking historically at at what happened. It's an interesting area because, um, uh, so it's a peninsula kind of uh, below Long Island. Uh, And so uh, back in the day, it was this spot where Kind of wealthy New Yorkers could go in the summer because there'd be a nice breeze off the ocean and, and that kind of thing. But it had become an area with a lot of um, affordable housing projects, and also kind of where you know people who wanted you know a yard but couldn't afford you know those things in the city could could live outside of the city. Um, and so there was an interesting dynamic. Uh, that had come from, you know, housing projects getting pushed out further, Um, an Orthodox Jewish community that maybe they thought kind of similar to the Vietnamese community, like wouldn't complain about, Mm -hmm. you know, disruptions of services or or things like that. And so that community was, um, had some challenges and had faced adversity before. And then after, Sandy hit, we're isolated for a couple of weeks based on the kind of peninsula and, and those sorts of things. Um, but so we, we, we were able to read a lot on the community ahead of time, uh, learn a lot about the Orthodox Jewish community and kind of ask questions for people that we knew that could help us prepare because we are not. And we are, and to be women going into that was interesting, but it helped that we were students, uh, for sure. Cause we could uh, have people that wanted to you know, kind of teach us as, as we were doing the yeah. field work. Um, that first uh, few weeks we were down there, it was really hard to get into the community ahead of time. So we weren't able to schedule a lot of interviews before we got there, but we did have a couple of interviews with rabbis, um, lined up. And as soon as they kind of you know, tested us and made sure we were legit. Then the community kind of opened up to us. Um, And so, you know, that first, that first trip was um, a little bit stressful because you were worried that you didn't have enough things lined up and, you know, what happens if nobody wants to talk to you? But by the end, we had, you know, a good slate of interviews and knew what we would do next um, to do that. Um, It did take the next summer we were able to get a lot deeper, kind of doing secondary interviews with people. Uh, we finally got access to some of the women of the uh, community, uh, and so uh, that was really important too, because we, you know, like we we wanted to make sure that we weren't just getting, you know, kind of leaders of the community that had a narrative they wanted to say, but a diversity of, of things. Um, there's this uh, lovely. Uh, older woman in the community that, you know, it's kind of like the gossip of the neighborhood that we talk about in the book. And when we first got to interview her, um, one of the rabbis came with us, like walked us over to her house and stayed for a while. And we just were waiting for him to leave. And so when he, he left, she's like, okay, do you want to hear the women's stories? And you're like, yes, please, please tell us about that. So that kind of like evolving nature of, of the interview process, and you know, kind of legitimizing yourself in the community to make sure that they know that you're not, you know, there for alternative motives or, or things like that was important. We were able, you know, we ate at restaurants in the community so that we could see what's going on and those sorts of things, and and that was really helpful. It was also really helpful to know a bit about the um, process that FEMA uses as well. So I had um, you know, been in the command center for hurricane Irene. Um, and so those sorts of lessons were, were helpful to apply, even though they weren't necessarily directly connected to the individuals that had survived the storm, but, you know, gave context to to what we were doing too. Um, and I really enjoyed working with Laura because we could, you know, like one of the major things that is important with doing field work is that it's a, a team effort. And so, you know, figuring out who's going to be your interview partner, how you work together in an interview really matters. Um, And so, you know, if things, you know, if somebody was recalling a particularly emotional part of their story, one of us could step in while the other one takes notes and kind of take turns and, and then, you know, the discussions that we had afterwards, right? Like plenty of paper ideas as, as you're figuring that out. And so,
1: I find Absolutely. it fascinating that your retelling of this just from a operational point of view of, so if you think about it, you're dealing with a community that's four hours away from the community that you're living in, but it might as well be, you know, 300 years and 5,000 miles away in many different ways. And so you have to figure out a way so that there's a, they trust you. Um, yet at the same time, you as an observer need to understand that the rule, the leaders want to tell a narrative uh, and whatnot. I'm always reminded of, um, you know, like in Chris's work where they're trying to in, in the doing doing bad by doing good, uh, where the puzzle comes up about the human terrain project, because the human terrain project was, uh, you know, after the uh, after the war and the rebuilding effort in Afghanistan and in and, and in Iraq uh, and Iran, uh, you know, you would go in there, and then they would have a, a soldier would be uh, accompany the people who were doing the interviewing. <laughs> and you want the United States government to do X, and they're like with their you know guns sitting there like that. That's not a true answer. That's like your rabbi, you know, trying to and so figuring out how to negotiate that and everything like that. And, and I, 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 we'll come back to this theme, but one of the things that's so obvious, I think, in the conversation with you is how even going back to when you were an undergraduate, you cared about the impact of these ideas on the everyday life of people, as opposed to just what was going on in the circulation of elites and getting access to that everyday You know, ideas is is in many ways a major uh, aspect of your own scholarship and of your various different efforts, and I think that that's um, you know an important part of what motivates your curiosity, which I think is what we as social scientists want to do—not not necessarily talk about theories on a blackboard or the elites who are determining the policy, but even like the way you talked about you know Tullock talking about bureaucracy and yourself learning about bureaucracy in the belly of the beast. And it's also fascinating because you assume sincerity, right? So the kind of public choice dysfunctional incentives are a byproduct, not an assumption going in. And a lot of people confuse that. They think public choice is, um, is like house of cards, right? <laughs> As opposed to it's an examination of the structures and how that then generates even very sincere people that are trying to do things, how they, they go awry in that. Um, so anyway, I mean, I, 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 I'm fascinated by by this aspect of, of your work. And I think it's really important. And I think that that's a great aspect for people to emulate and try to follow. So I, I hope that they, they get that same sense. But let's go back to this idea. You mentioned it briefly about social capital in your work with with Virgil, this is a kind of a critical aspect, but it's also the case that, um, you know, you know, and we've talked about this, this work in our class, uh, this term, and we have focused on James Coleman's development of that idea, but also Glenn Lowry's idea and the relations versus uh, before transactions. But you and and Virgil and others that have worked on this concept have a, a, a sort of a slightly different Take than a lot of the constructions that have gone on there, and so that's a conceptual innovation that you're involved in, and then an application of that. So run with that a little bit.
2: Yeah. So I think uh, you know the the concept of social capital and this kind of you know, utilization of economic sociology and and converging these other fields is is I think really helpful to um, be able to kind of further explain and, and kind of build on the theories, particularly of Austrian economics. Um, and so I, I found the concept, uh, and utilizing the work of, of folks like Coleman and others really helpful because it gets at things that are important in Austrian economics, but maybe not have the, um, you know, like the jargon and the, the tools for economics to easily understand. And so, you know, this idea of how does local knowledge work and transmit outside of the market or even inside in what kind of more complicated ways or, um, you know, the the idea in, in economics and, and in Austrian economics of the importance of exchange and process. Well, what comes out of that and what are all the benefits that we, we accrue? So we know, you know, we, Economics has a has a pretty clear story about the, the prosperity that comes with these interactions. But a lot of uh, opponents of these ideas, that's not compelling. So how do we, how do we build up that case a little bit more? Uh, and this, this idea of sort of social spaces or, or the meaning and context and community aspects of, of what we do. Um, and so I think those are elements of Austrian economics that are really important and we kind of feel them every day at Mason because we have this really awesome community of scholars and students that are interested in these ideas, but we sometimes don't talk about them a lot in our analysis. And so I think social capital provides us a way to do that with, you know, sort of mechanisms and, and kind of a theory that we can build upon. Um, But sort of similarly what we know from our training is that there's stuff about the social capital literature that you know maybe misses the point or um could lead astray and so I think there's that what's really cool about social science is you get to have this dialogue with the ideas right and so uh we could utilize that theory because it's helpful but hopefully we're also pushing back on the literature that that that, that is in that as well and so I think that that um, you know, I think utilizing these concepts from other disciplines and figuring out how to do so through the lens of economics, but through this idea of like how do we really talk about meaning and culture and context is is really important. Um, and so that allows us to do things like, you know, really explore how maybe people and situations that we would traditionally think wouldn't be capable of overcoming a disaster or you know, oh, we assume it has to be maybe a central planning effort after Hurricane Katrina. If you can show that, you know, similar mechanisms to the market are happening through these really loose ties and close-knit communities and all of those things, it's, um, I think, really powerful to show, hey, we don't always have, it's not just about those policies. People on the ground are, are doing things all the time.
1: Yeah, let me, and, let me jump in here because I want to actually I want to highlight something on that, because imagine if I was asked, could I sum up like what Stephanie's all you know, Dr. Hoffley's, what is her work all about? And I would say, well, it's really about, you know, basically the role of entrepreneurship in the private, public and community level, and that it, it basically sees this entrepreneurial activity as basically discovering, building, and deploying social capital in order to make sure. So it's not purely Kersnerian, like entrepreneurial alertness to an opportunity, but models that don't take into account that alertness or not right. At the same time, you know, it's, it's taking into this idea of social networks, social relations, the, the building of that and the maintaining of that and the maintenance of that. So it's, it's like building a capital structure, um, but out of these social relations. And the ultimate goal of all this is to say that ordinary people can do extraordinary things if we just give them the space to do so, as opposed to thinking that the only way that we can have a solution to our social ills is if extraordinary people are given extraordinary powers to be able to pull it off. And that it's that work as a whole that, you know, enlightens us, it it helps us understand how communities uh, respond, Uh, provide relief and offer recovery. You know, there's like, there's a big word nowadays that everyone uses about sustainability, right? Well, the issue is is that these communities can only bounce back if they actually have this internal sustainability, which is you find in the energy of the communities themselves, rather than always having external. So do you think you agree with that characterization of your work and the importance of, of it?
2: Yeah, I like it. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I think that it's um, you know I think that that's really sums up sort of in a way that I was maybe talking around it right really well Um, because I think it also gives you know sort of the some of the narrative and the um, to what uh, Ostrom was doing too right so we can talk about all these you know all the conditions that are needed for common pool resources. Um, but being able to, to also match with that, with the social relations kind of builds up that community aspect in a way that might feel stripped if we're just talking about, you know, graduated sanctions, Right. but we can now see what it is in the, in the communities too. So I think those sorts of like being able to bridge those various disciplines and strands of thought to really get at, you know, there's a lot going on every day that we're not relying on politics for is important to remember, particularly yeah. in times when you know politics is over, you know, looming over us in a way that we need to remember. Most of our lives can so, go on without them.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's an old Tocqueville point, right, about the difference between Europe and the United States. But you know, it's a it's another like methodologically, if you go back, think about your interests. Like you have a you know, the, the the phrase basically, we can say you know that uh, we want to give, uh, you know, meaning, uh, you know, and study the meaning and stuff like that. Well, there's certain methods that are appropriate to study meaning. And so they come in the form of ethnography, of uh, you know, so structured interviews, uh, participant observation, uh, social history. You know, a lot of people think social history, get, they get a bad name, but actually we want to be social historians. Uh, and because we want to actually get access to the uh, the information of how these things affect people on the ground, and so this is why I think there it leads us to wanting to embrace field work. It's not that field work and case studies are any less rigorous to do. In fact, they might require, as you mentioned in your, you know, you have to actually study for a long time to understand and be able to build up that relationship so that you can go into the Orthodox community and not the especially as a young woman in that community you're you're an alien to them right i mean you you you're not the norm of what you know and yet you have to somehow figure out a way to to interact in that world and that space to be able to get them to give them voice so you know it's it's um, like in the, in the book that Virgil and, and Nona Martin and Emily did on how we came back it gives voice to the to the the architects of their own destiny in some sense, right in their world. So, I think that you've done that as well in your community revival book and other projects that you've done. So, all kudos to you. Those are great contributions to the literature.
2: Thanks. Yeah, I think the uh, your point about you know sort of the rigor and and methods I think is really important because you know if we're interested in how. You know, real people are dealing with these challenges. Even you know, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of great studies and insight that can come from sort of the no, the normal economic analysis and right. regressions and you know data indices and those sorts of things. But you know, just like when we were talking about going into the Orthodox Jewish community, that there's the elites of that community, and then we've got to try to filter that out all this data that's coming through World Bank surveys and you know, yeah. data collection from governments, that's all coming through the lens of the decision makers of those countries. And so I think what's really powerful about field work is it's, it's messy and it's complicated and you've got to always be you know, open and encouraging in the interview, but skeptical in your analysis yeah. of the interview. Uh, in a way that we might just overlook that needs to happen um, with some of the other methods that we have too. And so I think that, you know, every every method is challenging and requires a set of skills um, yeah. is important to think about because, you know, to do any of those well, you need to know precisely all the ways that they're flawed and, and how to think about improving them.
1: I, I just, uh, yesterday I stumbled upon an old article by Bill Easterly that was posted when he was at Brookings, and it says, um, "Listen to the development experts: colon all seven billion of them." <laughs> and so it's great. And then, and then yesterday he he posted a thing because uh, Brookings referred to him as an ex, uh, a former expert, and he said, "Finally, the title I always wanted to have." <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so it's a it's a fascinating thing this this vision and perspective I think and it's one of the things that Lynn you know obviously had very going very strongly in her approach but also in several of the other you know we're going to talk to Viviana Zelzer later in this term and she's another one that you had an opportunity to meet and interact with and she's also amazingly accomplished and amazingly graceful and 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 uh, you know whatnot. Uh, you've read her work uh, and and whatnot. And so just a quick word before I get to the other questions.
2: Yeah, um, yeah, she definitely, I think after last fall when she came, I think you and I talked about, you know, like I had this feeling as if when Lynn came and you had this, uh, you know, just sort of like really special scholar um, that's really interested. You know, she spent hours the day after her lecture talking to students about their own research and, and what they're interested in in a way that was there as well. You know, I think this, you know, this this idea that exchange and the messiness of going about your life matters, I think is something both of them, you know, really embrace in different ways. And so, you know, the fact that when we make decisions and we purchase things on the market or, or we interact with friends in ways like that, that has to deal with money it's not just you know there's there's things about the meaning and and mm-hmm. implications of those exchanges that go beyond sort of the 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 kind of concept of money that could take all those things away and and that fits again really well with Austrian economics right because we right. um um you kind of talk about those complexities and so um we're based on that lecture we're putting together an edited volume that looks at exploring the work of Zelazar and Ostrom and kind of bringing those ideas together. And that's that's really exciting.
1: Yeah, this leads right into my next um, sort of set of questions for you because, but I wanted to make sure that we we highlighted your uh, very important contributions to this whole scholarly field and the background of people in their most vulnerable moments because they've just been hit with a, a major crisis. You know, I personally this year had, besides 2020 just being the year that sucks in general, uh, I, I I had my house burned down. Uh, you know, uh, and now it's a vacation home that burned down. But the troubles that we have had with the uh, you know insurance and all of that kind of stuff and everything like that, I can't imagine what pain and suffering people go through if it's their primary residence you know first of all there's the shock you know uh and you know there's unintended consequences on everything you know our dog saved us my dear dog you know woke us up and got us out of there so ever since that time rosemary and i have both been very generous with snacks to the dog so we took the dog to the vet last week and they're like gotta put that dog on a diet (laughs) she gained a little too much weight uh, so now we're like no 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 little, no little snack for you now and she stares at us and we're like oh we feel terrible but anyway <laughs> yeah. um, but i you know the, the the you were dealing with people in their most raw moment because their life had just been ripped apart you know and you read that when you were reading all the interviews down in for katrina but then you experienced it as you said yourself you're have, have an important partner because you're talking to somebody and they're, they're at the rawest moment. How do you deal with that? Do you have any, I mean, at some level that's not really a scientific method. It's just being a human being, right?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think that the, you know, so a lot of the things that come from the Austrian, Virginia and Bloomington schools of political economy is this idea of humanity and, and, you really get to learn that doing fieldwork in a way that you wouldn't otherwise. And so, you know, how do you remain somebody who's a social scientist when somebody is tearing up. up, talking about their story? How do you have that sense of humanity? Uh, a couple of years ago, I had the MA fellows read McCloskey's, uh "How to Be an econo- like how to be economist while being a human. Or yeah, yeah. I always forget the name of the title, but like. You know, though, those sorts of things, I think, are easy to, you know, when we're just dealing with our day-to-day lives, forgetting that everyone does have these complex narratives and that they are dealing with all these other things. Um, you know, the, the thing I talk to, stu- to people about that want to do fieldwork for the first time and students thinking about it is, is you know, I, I will be a stickler of who's your interview partner, what do they know about the project, okay, you can only schedule four interviews a day because you're going to need time to decompress or you don't know which interview is going to take 20 minutes and what turns into three hours and, and how do you do that? And so I think that kind of like, it's exhausting and emotionally, there's an emotional toll when you're doing it, but it's also one of the most thrilling experiences i've had as a as a scholar as well so yeah. you know i love interacting with students when they get the ideas and start to write but i also there's something about going into the field and you see people recalling their worst moments and they have hope and that that's really powerful
1: yeah 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 i think that's such an important message you know you're you're a much better person than me I, I, what I remember in my own efforts at field work is, is when I put my foot squarely in my mouth, you know, and, and things. So I was doing a set of interviews in Russia. And uh, right after the collapse of communism, I was a fellow at the Academy of Sciences. And uh, the Academy of Sciences assigned two people to me. One of them was a cultural aid and the other one was a scientific aid. And so I had these two people to steer me through various different things and it's my cultural aid my scientific aid mainly you know wanted to take me i met the department chairman of you know moscow state i met the head of this research division you know we had talks i gave seminars things like that but the cultural aid was the one who helped me you know go into to supermarkets you know and to go to the street markets and you know bolshoi theater and you know all the kind of things like that so We're walking around, uh, uh, you know, Arbot Street, which is where they have open markets and everything. And I'm like just fascinated. And I'm taking notes down because I'm noticing that there's these huge price spreads that are much bigger than the price spread would be or should be if you just took into account transportation costs, right? And she turns to me at one point and she goes, you find this fascinating, don't you? And I said, I went on this big long thing about how of course, how amazing it is. This is the most amazing thing. We shouldn't be doing experimental economics. We should be sending students into the field. Like why, why are we wasting money doing this everything like that? And I said, don't you find this fascinating? She also was a PhD in economics. And she said, no, she goes, I have to spend five hours a day on a fixed budget, trying to find the food for my family. And then I was like, oh, and I'm sitting here, you know, wasting your time because I'm like, hey, can I go to this market over here? Can I go here or whatever? Right. Fast forward, you know, so then I'm thinking, oh, check yourself, Pete. You know, you need to check yourself. <laughs> so then I go fast forward and we're down in, in New Orleans, you know, like six weeks, eight weeks after, you know, the, the storm. Six weeks, I think it was. And we're sitting there talking to one of the, the main businessmen. And he's showing us how they've lost their entire, you know, utility grid. Seventy five percent of the utility grid has been wiped out because of the storm. So what do you do with that? And everything like that. And I'm, of course, fascinated because what had happened was they had come in and they were able to get workers that pushed the debris to the side of the streets. But they couldn't do any rebuilding yet. Right. Because everything is you know, a mess. So I'm like sitting in his office and he's asking me questions and I'm getting all giddy again, you know, like how amazing is this? Like, look at all the things we're learning. And then he says to me, yeah, I can realize that scientists get very excited when you flood the maze full of water and then you watch what the rats do. And I was like, they're not rats. They're they're like me, you know, (laughs) like, I don't mean it like that, you know? And it really hit home when I met with uh, uh, a young couple 25-year-olds, maybe younger, that were uh, two youth ministers, and they had just moved to Central City, New Orleans, one week before, you know, they graduated, you know, seminary, they went on, they got married, they went on their honeymoon, and then their first assignment was in New Orleans, in the Center City, working with the Baptist Church right down there, and they were youth ministers, and they had hardly slept. For the six weeks, and they were involved, and these were heroes. I mean, they helped organize the van caravans, of vans to get people out of the center city or whatever. And their eye, they were exhausted, you know. Mm. And, and we're here, you know, flying down, you know, all like dressed, staying in like you know whatever hotels still working. And they're in the house that doesn't have water and everything. And we're like, so tell us about you know your troubles or whatever. And it really da you know was daunting on me. And I think that that's like. When we think about development economics, which is an area of, 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 uh, of this uh, kind of uh, program, uh, disaster, you know, programs in the wake of, let's say, you know, a public health crisis or of a natural disaster, you're dealing with people so in the raw and being able to figure out how to do that in a way that's also objective, but pays attention to their subjective reality. Yeah.
2: Sorry for that little... No, I love it. I think, you know, like, you know, I think too, there's one of the things that I think fieldwork has really helped me embrace is just the messiness of humanity. Right. And I think this is a, you know, it gets back, you know, I'm always thinking about how that's something important in Austrian economics too, but it's this idea that we're, you know, we can be curious and fallible, but we are doing a social science of, studying things that we are, right? Like we can't really have that detached view because we do have emotional responses. We do have personal experiences. And I think that I'm really fascinated by learning about all those aspects of how people work, right? So like the idea that, you know, there's these heroic efforts to fight against, you know, turning your neighborhood into a green space or getting resources that you need. And But then all of a sudden, those same people might learn how to, you know, lobby for stuff that doesn't make sense. You know, like everything's got this complicated nature.
1: um, Yeah, it's interesting to see the the uh, post-crisis careers of people who were so effective at invoking private sector and community resources and overcoming because they couldn't trust The public resource but then afterwards they become political actors right and so you're like wait a minute like why did you do that like you were this amazing like local organizer why the hell would you then want to be this but they they're inevitably it's a very high percentage of them who do the heroes that are on the ground oftentimes become then, but they don't think the same way that we do about it right they just think that it's scalable and they can they, they were limited because people before had the wrong vision, you know, and, and kind of thing.
0: Yeah, but, yeah. All right. And
1: then me, you. I, I, by the way, I mean, I just think it's fascinating uh, and, and the research that you've done and the, and, and the work that you do is very uh, unleashes curiosity and it reflects all of this and it does capture this messiness. And yet also this, this in many ways, the clarity that comes out of the individuals underneath. So uh, I, I want to, you know, applaud you for all of that stuff. But I want to ask you a question, which is also unique to you, uh, which is that, uh, so you've made, you know, many of these contributions to scholarship, but you also have devoted a tremendous amount of your time to the organization of scientific inquiry with editing. You mentioned about editing projects, research project management, uh, and more importantly, also research design and leadership over a project. And so first, maybe if you could talk a little bit about some of those buckets that you've done and examples. And also, uh, you know, because I, I think these are critical roles that don't like there can be no science unless there's scientific managers. There can be no journals or books unless there's editors. Uh, there can be no, uh, you know, uh, there's a in the movie, the, the Right Stuff, there's a great line where they're talking and the guy says, no bucks, no Buck Rogers, right? So you need people who are able to go out, write The foundation grants work with those things in order to make all these things happen that a lot of people just take for granted. All right. And and that's part of the problem of dealing with personalities too, right? In academia is that you have these things, but you play this really important role of both being a scholar and also being an organizer and entrepreneur in that level. And so, take your scholar hat off for a minute and talk about this role that you see and how it evolved for you and how, what lessons you would maybe give to students that are thinking about a career in ideas. So forget, let's talk about academia, because we don't know what the future is going to hold, but the the idea construction or the idea business. And that's what we're all in at some levels, the idea business. So.
2: Yeah, yeah. First, thank you for that. And I've I think something that's important is that I've had some really great role models like yourself to to model off of and, and kind of see the, the path for what that looks like. Um, I've been thinking a lot about the question since you sent it to me. And I think, you know, one thing that just might be like part of my personality is I'm really interested in figuring out how things work, kind of how how everything, you know, how how like an organization is run, But how it connects to its mission and things like that so you know I was the sort of like annoying kid in high school that started working at a restaurant and then did all of the roles and then was a manager of the front of house (laughs) right like and so um you know part of why I did that was I was fascinated about learning all those different aspects but like I also wanted to be the manager of the front of house and do like payroll so that I didn't have to go to school half the day because I could, you know, do a work, work program. Um, and so I've always kind of been in that Adam's spot a little
1: kid that wanted to, to make the machine so you could play ball rather than, go ahead, sorry.
2: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That. No,
1: exactly, Probably right? Stephanie's figuring out a way to, to get out of the drudgery work by doing the innovative work elsewhere. Yeah, yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah, so, um, and so I've always sort of gravitated towards positions like that, that you could kind of figure figure things out, say yes to a bunch of different things, and then be able to understand how to, you know, break it or improve it or, or, or or whatever. Um, I like to be, I like to have ownership over things too. So that that probably helps. Um, But I think that that sort of mindset lended itself really well to, um, you know, kind of Saying yes to a bunch of opportunities in undergrad, like the editing project with right. my professor, or you know, becoming the treasurer and president of the Habitat for Humanity campus chapter, and figuring out how to raise funds and get grants to do that sort of thing, um, but also to fieldwork, right? Because I want to, I want to, like, it's fa- endlessly fascinating for me to listen to somebody talk about how their job works or how their story worked and how, how it all kind of kind of came about. And so I think that that approach to things has been helpful. And so when I got to uh, Mason and Mercatus as an, as an MA fellow, you know, I was able to, you know, as I wanted to kind of figure out like, okay, what is it, what does Russ do differently when he lectures to us versus talks to somebody on the Hill versus oh. does the podcast. Yeah. I wanted to learn how to write papers and op-eds and policy briefs. And so I think that those sorts of projects and getting to kind of understand those ideas, I think helped for me, I wanted, you know, it was, it was fascinating and exciting to then get to run the MA fellowship. When I came back, create a new fellowship, figure out how to, you know, do an edited volume, um, how to, you know, support and like market the ideas of our scholars and and the fellowships. And so that kind of interest or curiosity across all of that, right, learning how to do marketing helped me learn how to think about book covers and and all the things that we get to talk about. Um, But then I think also getting to come back and run the MA fellowship because after I had been a part of it and the process of going through the PhD program is I – you know when you have 20 something master students that you know, kind of report to you and you're you're figuring out how to give them opportunities you're you're reading and editing a lot of stuff for them right giving them right. feedback wanting to see opportunities for them to write and so and then i'm like really persnickety about editing like i have a really hard time reading something and not copy editing or like fixing the footnotes or whatever as I go along. So that, I think that helped a lot. Um, And so then I was able to just kind of continue on those opportunities and, you know, Virgil and and you and others kind of saw those skills and I could also emulate you guys because you're, um, you know, like there's, we're in a special place with the Hayek program where so many of our scholars care about teaching care about mentorship care about editing book series and journals and so it's it's really about opening up opportunities for the research and then the research right like yeah. it's a it's about all of that stuff and so then that's all of a sudden that's how you have nine edited volumes in like 5 years right. <laughs>
1: No, it's a, it's a, it, you, you, you're amazing and you've done an amazing job and uh, it's it's really important. I mean, I, I always tell everyone when I'm out on the chicken dinner circuit as well as here that, you know, our goal is to have uh, what I call five tool academics, you know, who are scholars, teachers, public intellectuals, policy analysts, and academic entrepreneurs, Right. And of course, not everyone can be good at all five of those things, but the people who are, are, are people that make impact. And you're one of those people that make a huge impact. And so, uh, you know, it's just a thrill to, you know, work with you and see you do this. And, you know, it's, it's always, I'm always a little guilty, feel guilty because you know, because of the, the the hard work that you do and others do, I'm able to concentrate more on some of those things and less on others of those that I that I maybe used to have to do more of. And um, but that's OK. You know, um, I saw a uh, Harrison Ford. Uh, I don't agree with all the things that he's saying, it, but he gave a talk the other day about the energy of the young people and how the young people are are, you know, basically. You know, it's like the old Whitney Houston song. I guess it's a Dolly Parton song, right? About You know, they're, they're our future or whatever. But, uh, you know, he's basically talking about the energy that they have and the moral. He called them a moral army or whatever. And then he said, the most important thing that we can do is get out of their way. And, you know, I've always felt that way about the, the sort of next generation, the next generation of people that are working in our kind of field is that the biggest problem is the older generation trying to eat the young, as opposed to creating space and seeing it all grow. And to be honest with you, I had a great conversation with Vernon Smith about this years ago, and he's another one who just created space and let people run where they want it. And he was, you know, he was like really good. If you compare that to some of the more, Uh, you know, quote unquote, conservative forces, not ideologically conservative, but scientifically conservative forces, they like, want to hold people back. And, you know, this and that. And anyway, so anyway, I think it's great. Um, And what you've done is is just fascinating. Yeah, it's interesting that you said the thing about saying yes, because right before COVID happened, I don't know if you know this, but another one of your uh, uh, cohort, uh, uh, Leah uh, Palagashvili gave a talk, and one of the things that she told all of the students was uh, to say yes to every opportunity because now's not the time for you to say no. Yeah. And, and you've done that yourself. And, and that leads to problems of being overcommitted, <laughs> you know, other kind of things like that. But like Leah's point, your point was that that's also what led to all these opportunities and, and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, I think
2: that's how you learn to work in that space like you know we it's always overwhelming and so learning how to do that but also like yeah i think when we're when you're in the when you're in the learning process and when you're figuring out what your contribution is is not the time to say no because you'll never figure it out like you know i i learned about what i thought about working in government by trying it not by having a stance before i before I did, um, you know, I had a bunch of lessons to bring from my training about what that would be like so that I wasn't, you know, maybe overly optimistic, but um, <laughs> you know, like you, you you, get the, I think you get the, the luxury of saying no later.
1: Yes, yeah. And you that's something did, to look for. I was just gonna say, you didn't say no to it, you learned from it. Yes. So I think that's the key thing when you talk to a Viviana, you talk to a Lynn, you talk to a Vernon, they're lifelong learners. So they're learning every day, they're processing new information every day. It's not repeating the same old thing over and over again, that the world is like a book that they're constantly reading and has new chapters that they're excited. And I think that that uh, that's reflected not only in them, but in, in the way that you approach your work and everything like that. So it's, it's fascinating. I uh, have one last question for you, which is just purely on your own intellectual imagination. What, project research or that you're organizing at the moment most excites you, like keeps you up at night thinking about?
2: Yeah, so that's, a, it's a good question. Um, you know, the saying yes to a bunch of things means there's a lot on the docket um, and I'm mostly uh, wanting to finish things so I can get to the new ones. Um, but currently we've got a couple of projects that I think are gonna be really interesting. Um, so can kind of the first is sort of, you know, the. COVID and what on earth is going on and how do we continue to apply the lessons of disaster recovery research to these ideas and and what can we learn from it. So um, we have a big survey that went out over the summer asking people, you know, what were the challenges and how have things changed for them? And we have another survey that we'll hope to get out in the next couple of months looking at um, sort of decision makers at the business, nonprofit, and government level about how they had to adapt.
1: Oh, wow. That's um, very useful. Yeah, yeah.
2: yeah. So I think those projects are going to be really fun. Um, we were supposed to be in Puerto Rico this past June, starting to do interviews about uh, disaster recovery after Hurricane Maria, but also, you know, the complex nature of multiple disasters and crises happening in Puerto Rico. Um, you know, they've got territory status, they've got um, financial issues at the government level. Uh, When we were there in January doing some initial research, uh, you know, a batch of earthquakes that they had not experienced for a really long time, now COVID, right? So uh, this idea I'm interested in and worried about this idea of compounding crises. And does that how does that interact with the way we think about the world? Like, can, can we utilize those to, to recover? Does that lead to resilience or does it lead to challenges? Um, and then the one I'm really interested in, but I'm worried about when we're gonna be able to start working on it is, you know, a lot of the things that we've we've learned from this line of research is, you know, the, the power of people to overcome challenges and, the struggle for civil liberties and and dealing with oppression can be really highlighted in this space and vulnerable populations. And so, you know, what, what can we think about, you know, social justice issues and, and um, how people can fight for and obtain civil liberties through this lens, I think matters a lot and, and kind of get that some of that those lessons that we've learned from talking to people and, 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 how do we, how do we get to those ideas? So those are the things I'm excited about and man, we just need more time so we can yeah. take into them.
1: <laughs> well, those are, those are all very important and also extremely, uh, you know, fascinating topics to, to work on. Uh, I want to thank you very much for having this conversation with me and for all that you're doing to advance sound thinking and, and exciting thinking at at Mercatus. So thank you very much.
2: Thank you. This was
0: great. Thank you for listening to the Hayek program podcast. To learn more about the research scholars and work of the Hayek program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. For more information about graduate student fellowship opportunities for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. We hope you recommend students to our programs or consider applying yourself.